This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Michael Lanspa, thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Drs. Kelly Branis and David Oyang and colleagues entitled Gender Difference in Authorship of Critical Care Literature. I'm joined today by author Kelly Branis from Oregon Health and Science University, senior author Dr. Angela Rogers from Stanford University, and Dr. Renee Stapleton from University of Vermont, who authored the accompanying editorial. Welcome all, and thank you for joining me. Thank Thank you for having us. Well, before we start diving into the study, can you tell me a little bit about the motivation for doing this study? I imagine that a lot of people are aware that there are gender disparities in critical care as well as in academic leadership, but how does demonstrating that there are disparities in critical care research authorship, how does that add to the discussion? Uh, Yeah, so this is Kelly Branis. So I I would start by saying early on, even as an intern, starting into my training, um, I knew I wanted to do critical care and I looked kind of forward, I think it's natural to look ahead and see if there are people similar to you who have kind of achieved a career that you would like to in the future and who can serve as role models. And I would say that even as an intern and then moving through residency and even fellowship, kind of looking ahead there, it was noticeable that there were a lack of women um, in particularly senior leadership positions, but even just clinical faculty in the ICUs that I was working in. And as I've continued to, you know, go through training and now at the junior faculty level, um, I, I realized that trying to understand why that might be is an important first step. And because publishing is such an important part of our career advancement in academic medicine, we hypothesize that perhaps, um, you know, there may be gender disparities, particularly in authorship within the field of critical care medicine, and that could be somehow related to the sort of lack or the gender disparity that we do see, particularly in leadership positions for women in academic medicine. This is Angela. I would agree that you you look around and you see that there aren't many women um, that are in leadership positions in critical care um, and things happen like some of the sepsis guideline papers had more than 10 authors and no women. That was something that really um, made news in our field a few years ago. Um, And so trying to understand what's the reason that this is happening. Is it a pipeline problem that women just choose not to do critical care? Is it uh, a first author problem? Is it a senior author problem? Can we try to understand more about where where um, where is this coming from we were uh, we were hoping that over the course of the last 10 years we would start to see the numbers rise Um, but in fact uh, what we found was that there's been very little uh, increase in the number of women authoring critical care um, journals even over the past 10 years all right yeah so I can see that's definitely a problem and I think it's a problem that many of us are aware of so let's get down into the study so dr. Brannis and Dr. Rogers, you analyzed over 18,000 critical care studies. How did you actually go through the selection approach? So yeah, um, so we wanted to come up with a way to identify peer-reviewed critical care literature that was rigorous and replicable. And so we started out by kind of discussing this with our group of co-authors and we decided to use this reverse engineering approach to extract critical care literature published over the last 10 years. So specifically, we started out by selecting journals that we felt both clinicians and physician scientists in the field of critical care would be aware of, that they would read and potentially submit their research to. We wanted to select ones that were high enough impact in the field that that our colleagues would be aware of them. 
So with that, we selected about 40 journals that publish both basic science and clinical research in the field of critical care, uh, really based on expert opinion from our group of co-authors. And we felt, um, you know, our group of co-authors really represents experts in the field of both clinical and basic science critical care research. So it was really a group uh, decision about which journals to include. As far as ranking journals, we used the 2017 impact factor. We included as high impact journals those in the top 5% of all journals based on that 2017 impact factor. And what that translated into was essentially an impact factor of greater than or equal to six during that year. Next, uh, we wanted to figure out how to specifically identify studies that pertain to critical care. So Angela and I selected 25 clinical and basic science studies that we consider to be impactful to our current practice of critical care medicine, and that also informed ongoing research efforts. Um, and with that, we reviewed, of these 25 articles, we reviewed the titles and abstracts and selected what we felt to be relevant search terms that um, could be used to then extract, to search for additional critical care literature in our, during our study period and extract relevant articles. We did do sort of a quality check on this as well. Um, our study period was between 2008 and 2018, but we randomly selected about 10 articles in 2019 that came out um, to sort of do a check and make sure that the search terms that we had used to extract critical care research articles uh, that the, we use that to check and make sure that the that additional articles published in 2019 would have been pulled by those same search terms. And we did, in fact, find that our search terms pulled those relevant articles that we would have included if, if the study had gone on to 2019, if that makes sense. So, so yeah, so that was the reverse engineering approach we used, recognizing that no search strategy is perfect to get all articles, but we felt like that strategy at least would be um, as rigorous as we could come up with and also hopefully replicable for other people who might pursue a similar uh, research question. Yeah, I think it's a very clever approach to a challenging problem. Dr. Stapleton, you had mentioned in your editorial, though, that um, this method of selection process might be prone to bias. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Thanks, Mike. By that statement, I think we simply meant to draw out the points that the authors um, really astutely brought forth in, in the paper. Um, while the processes that were just described um, that they used for manuscript selection are, I think, probably as robust as possible, um, they may have influenced the papers that were ultimately included in the study. Um, and I think really to, to be clear, we uh, don't feel like any alternative search strategy would have been better and less biased. We only intended to make sure that readers were aware of this limitation that was inherent in the, in the research. I agree. That sounds like a pretty sound approach. Dr. Vranis, you determined gender using an online database. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about how you went about uh, determining the gender of the authors. Absolutely. Um, so to determine gender of first and senior authors in the study, we used something called a genderized database. And essentially that database uses anonymized social security data and birth certificate data to aggregate first names and genders. Um, they do that both in the U.S. And, and they use similar sources in other countries to basically create a map from name to gender with a high degree of confidence. 
So the database we used has been validated in previous studies and it contains over 200,000 names across 79 countries and 89 languages. So it's pretty robust. However, having said that, it's not perfect. Um, we weren't able to identify all genders of different first names in the database. So to fill in those missing uh, names, we performed actually a manual internet search of authors' professional websites. We included photos and use of pronouns on the website to try to fill in that missing data. So overall, we were able to identify about 75% of first and senior author gender using the database. And then with our additional manual review, we got that number up to about 96% of known gender. Which does mean that Dr. Vranis and a few of her colleagues looked up something more than 4,000 names on the wow. internet, which is an, a gargantuan task. All right, sounds good. Uh, so my next question is for Dr. Rogers. And one of the thoughts that, uh, that, I, that I keep hearing uh, is that gender disparity is decreasing over time. How did you and your team account for temporal changes during these past 10 years? So we decided to focus on the last 10 years because of the general sense that there is such an increasing awareness of uh, the importance of advocating for women and um, uh, supporting each other, that, that perhaps we would be more likely to actually see um, changes in the, in the trends. Um, and unfortunately, what we saw was that it's true that when you look at over 18,000 papers, there is a very modest rise uh, over the past 10 years in the percentage of both first and senior authors um, in the critical care literature. But again, it's a very small um, change over time. We used linear regression uh, and also adjusted for the year that the articles were uh, written in to measure that. But I would say our most important finding is that while the um, proportion of women in both positions is changing, it would not reach 50% for something like, is it, Kelly, is it 40 years? Like, it would, yeah, it's about 40 years. Yeah. It's about 40 years from now to, to reach 50-50 if we kept going on the, on the meager slope that we're on. So um, even though, yes, things are improving, the rate of change is slow. Yeah, I'll agree that slope on the uh, figure was a little disheartening to look at. So Dr. Vranis, can you walk us through the main findings of your paper? Certainly. Um, so in total, we extracted over 18,000 critical care research articles over the 10-year study period. Again, that was between 2008 and 2018. Uh, kind of first off, we found that about 31% of the studies had female first authors, while 20% of the studies had female senior authors. And as we just discussed, this proportion really didn't change much over that 10-year period. Very slow rate of increase for both first and senior authors um, who are women. Um, interestingly, we did look at sort of the top 100, what we say the top 100 most prolific authors during the study period um, for all authorship of any manuscripts, not necessarily limited to first or senior authorship. And we found that out of those 100 most prolific authors uh, over the last 10 years, only 11 were women. Perhaps the most interesting finding to us was that the odds of female first authorship nearly doubled when the senior author was female rather than male. And similarly, we found that publications with a female senior author had 48% higher odds of including any female middle authors, really suggesting that women seem to collaborate with and promote other women. However, we did see that female first authors had higher odds of publishing in lower impact journals compared to male first authors. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think the women uh, were more likely to publish in lower impact journals as well? Um, so I think there's several potential reasons. It's uh, likely a multifactorial problem. First, I mean, we discussed in our paper this concept of a confidence gap between men and women. 
This has been written about pretty extensively in the business world, um, and there's a pretty widely cited Hewlett-Packard survey of their employees in which female employees were asked, you know, how qualified do you need to be to, uh, for a specific uh, position before you would consider applying for it? And women uh, noted that they felt like they had to meet 100% of the qualifications for a particular position before applying, whereas in contrast, generally men, male employees felt like they only needed to meet 60% of the job requirements before applying for a position. And th this idea of the confidence gap, I think I have seen firsthand uh, clinically in particular, this idea of the imposter syndrome where women physicians frequently feel um, they doubt their knowledge and their skill set despite having the same training or even more training than some of their male colleagues. So I think it's fair anecdotally to kind of extrapolate that, that confidence gap um, into the world of academic medicine in which women submit their research to lower tier journals on the first try, perhaps because they don't think that they will get into the higher tier journals. Um, uh, they don't have the confidence that that would happen. Uh, so I think that's one potential reason. I think another interesting point, uh, there was a recent study published that showed clinical articles in which the first and last authors were women. Um, those articles were significantly less likely to use positive terms like novel or excellent to describe their research. Um, compared to when the first or last author of an article was a man. So again, I think maybe women are less likely to tout their findings as, um, as outstanding or novel or uh, impactful, and that uh, may also be a reason for our findings that women have lower, uh, higher odds of publishing in lower impact journals, just sort of the way you almost sell yourself. Um, the narrative you, you give forth to the journals to which you uh, submit your research may be one potential mechanism for our findings as well. Yeah, you know, I, I agree a little bit with the opposite of the imposter syndrome in academia, where I've seen a lot of people asked to uh, speak on areas that they are not very knowledgeable on, but uh, certainly don't <laughs> seem to be stopped by a lack of confidence. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, what, I think we all know people like that in medicine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that women were first authors in about 30% of high-impact journals. And I think uh, Dr. Stapleton had pointed out in her um, editorial uh, about a 2018 study that showed that 37% of critical care professional society members were women. And so one of the questions, I guess, is, you know, is this 30%, uh, uh, is that reflective of critical care researchers uh, who are women? Or do you think that's uh, sizably lower than what the actual number of women are in critical care research? Data here are pretty lacking is one thing that Angela and I and our co-authors found in the study. It's hard to understand or hard to know what the denominator is, both for women just in the critical care medicine workforce at large, and particularly those in academic medicine who are pursuing careers as physician scientists. What we do know is that based on the best data available, women comprise anywhere from 20 to 50% of the critical care medicine workforce, really depending on geographic region. Um, we don't have a great idea of the number of women who are critical care researchers, but I would say our, some of the data we do have are that women comprise about just over 30% of all graduating pulmonary and critical care fellows um, in the United States. And that number has been pretty stable at that point for the last 10 years during the same years as our study period. I don't know how many of those women choose academic careers, um, but it's you know not the entire number of 30% graduating. So I, I can't tell you based on the data that we have exactly how the proportion of women who are pursuing 
careers as critical care researchers. But I think 30%, at best, that's the number of graduating fellows over the last 10 years. So I, I would still say, yeah, I, I agree. It seems like we could aim to have a higher proportion here. And I think that leads really well into my next question, which was for Dr. Stapleton, because Dr. Stapleton, you mentioned your editorial, a really great line, which uh, I thought was that the underrepresentation of women in academic medicine leads to this vicious cycle. I was hoping you might uh, be able to elaborate a little bit uh, on what you meant by that. So in all of academic medicine, including critical care, the number of publications and the impact of those research publications greatly influence both promotion and grant funding. Meaning that if an individual has lower impact and fewer research publications in a research or tenure tracked position at their institution, they're less likely to get promoted and less likely to be awarded grant funding. In turn, less grant funding leads to fewer publications. So there's the, the vicious cycle. If you have fewer publications, you get fewer grants, and fewer grants means fewer publications. I think it's also really important to point out that we think this might be partly able to explain the paucity of women in leadership roles. I think we're all aware that most people in academic leadership roles across institutions have a fairly robust publication record. And you can imagine in settings where people have fewer publications and a history of less grant funding than somebody else who applies for the job, they might be less likely to receive that position. So I think this article that doctors Vranis and Rogers have and others have worked on is uh, is really instrumental in telling us more about how the publication disparity by gender might uh, play into the leadership disparities that we see. For me, one of the most interesting findings in our paper really is the fact that if if the senior author is a woman, she is much more likely to include other women as middle and first authors. Um, I think that, you know, often, you know, people hear that women are not necessarily supportive of, of the women that are below them, you know, that and that suggests that maybe it wouldn't help to have so many more women in leadership roles. But I think our paper really argues against that, uh, that in fact, having more senior authors may allow more first authors uh, to pursue careers uh, in critical care as well. I also think that that's something that any person could look at their CV and ask themselves, okay, I've written 40 papers as senior author. How many women did I include as my middle authors and my first authors? You know, how am I doing on this front? Am I at, you know, am I including 30% uh, women as my first authors, as a, as a senior author, whether I'm a male or female, I, that's a number that I can search in my, own, in my own work. So for me, that would be something that I would love to have come out of this paper, to have people really ask, am I, am I being inclusive in the science that I'm doing? And if not, what are some things that I can do about that? That's great advice. Uh, and I, I hope all the listeners out there are really taking that to heart. One of the things that I think is frustrating that I guess I'd uh, mentioned before we got on uh, recording for this podcast was that when I read the title of the study, I, I knew what the conclusion would be, and I expect that most people would. So we all know that there's persistent gender disparity in our field. And one thing that I think is interesting is all three of you are involved or have been involved in trying to address those barriers for career advancement for women in our field. And so 
are there any practical steps or anything that you think that we could do uh, to try to reduce some of these barriers? I know you had mentioned trying to go through your own authorship uh, and, uh, and be conscious of that, but any other thoughts that you have we could do to improve this? I can say that, you know, our chair of medicine, Bob Harrington, is a cardiologist and is the head of the American Heart Association this year. And he has just blanket refused to be on panels that include only men. He says, if if that's your panel, I, w- I will not participate. And I think that's an example um, that we can all look toward, toward what is the diversity for gender, for ethnicity and race, et cetera, um, on, on the panels we're creating at ATS, I think we should definitely be trying to be as inclusive as we can because we tend, and I I know that ATS has made efforts in that um, area with um, having a limit on the number of talks one person can give, for example, because the fact is, yes, they're often very famous people, but there are a lot of other really great people who could speak on similar topics. So really focusing on that um, at, at the ATS level is something we can do for sure. And I'll add to that sort of at the at the journal level, I think one solution that could be implemented right away would be double blind review of submitted manuscripts as a way to overcome some unconscious biases and gender stereotypes that may exist. Um, and then, you know, moreover, I think journals can make a very explicit effort to close the gender gap. So as we discussed, our study shows that articles with a female senior author doubled the odds of having a female first author. Similarly, there's evidence that more women in journal leadership positions have been associated with greater numbers of women on editorial and advisory boards. And so I think kind of coming back to what Angela said, women, at least based on our study and some other evidence I've seen, women really do seem to advocate for other women in a way that may not happen as much when women don't have seats at the table to begin with. So for that reason, it makes sense to me that journals should be proactive and deliberate in in creating strategies to increase women's participation, starting in peer review, and that I think can help break the, the vicious cycle that Dr. Stapleton referred to and actually create a positive feedback loop that could promote women into more leadership positions across journals as well. I agree with everything that both Dr. Rogers and Brannis uh, just commented on. You know, I, I think we all have implicit biases that are, uh, that are unconscious, that we're not aware of, and that includes both men and women. Um, I think it includes all of us. So the key to changing our culture is to be aware that that is inherent in all of us and just to very deliberately and very consciously ensure diversity in all of our activities. I think the ATS has done an excellent job over the last year updating their diversity and inclusion policy, which everybody can find on the ATS website and is very comprehensive, um, very inclusive, and I think makes a special point of gender and racial and ethnic diversity as well as diversity of other factors as well that are important across cultures. The other, the other component that I think uh, really needs to be out there is just simply education and awareness. Most of us, I think, are not necessarily in tune with our implicit biases. Just in, inherently, we don't recognize those. And educating people that those exist and to try to build that into their daily lives, I think, is incredibly important to, to change the way we do this. I love the moves that were mentioned about uh, folks in leadership positions refusing to participate in things like panels and guideline groups and people that are getting together to write statements on different topics in medicine unless the panel includes a representative group, um, including 
different genders and people of color, et cetera. Um, I think that's, that's especially helpful. And folks in leadership really make a difference when they do that. Yeah, I can say one of the easiest ways to make sure your proposal does not get programmed for American Thoracic Society conference is to make sure you have a panel of all men. I also love the idea of the uh, double-blind review. I think it's, uh, aside from implicit biases of gender, there's a real difficulty trying to dissociate notoriety. If, uh, if you have a very prominent author who submits something, I imagine a reviewer is a little bit more likely to be lenient towards that uh, prominent author. It would be better to make everything double-blinded. I think those are great ideas. One of the things that uh, Dr. Rogers, as well as uh, Dr. Stapleton and Dr. Vranis had mentioned was about the correlation about women mentors and women as first authors. And uh, this reminds me of work that was presented at ATS last year by Metapoly and Gershengorn that found that women trainees were more common at uh, sites with women leaders or mentors. And so I've seen at ATS a lot of prominent women leaders that I've you know, witnessed secondhand building careers of junior women but not everyone has access to those mentors. And so uh, any practical advice that you might give to a junior academic critical care uh, woman who doesn't have a prominent woman mentor at her institution who is looking to build a career that doesn't have those same sorts of uh, avenues as someone who might uh, practice with a more prominent mentor. One thing I would say is um, Dr. Vanis mentioned that a lot of women just don't go into critical care if they never see uh, a woman, you know, someone to emulate at their university. So I do think, you know, that's a first stumbling block is to get to ATS, you have to have almost already chosen to do the field. And and so it really does matter that a lack of women will perpetuate this uh, lack of women going into the field. Um, I do think one of the wonderful things that ATS does is um, it has a mentorship program. Each of the assemblies have that uh, where you can uh, get to know someone who's ahead of you on the pipeline, wherever you are, if you're an instructor or assistant, then you can be paired with someone much more senior in, in ATS leadership. So getting to know others, that, that would be one way to do it. It's not gender specific, but is a way to, to meet people. I have found the assemblies to be incredibly welcoming um, in terms of you know getting really involved with ATS and getting to know people at other um, institutions. And finally, there's a wonderful women's lunch at ATS every year. I, I know I see uh, Kelly and I often get to sit together together um, uh, as, as a way to recognize, you look around the room and it's like, wow, there are thousands of women uh, critical care physicians. And so that's another uh, fantastic way to get to know other uh, female leaders. Yeah, I want to echo that. I personally have benefited from the critical care mentorship program um, as a mentee. Um, and I think that is an excellent program that really opens doors for people who don't have someone uh, who they can point to in their own institution, who serves as that sort of example and role model from a career standpoint. I would also just encourage more junior faculty, both trainees and really, really the junior faculty level where you be you benefit so much from mentorship, to to try to overcome the confidence gap and reach out to women in other institutions, either who you might meet through the mentorship program or even just you know, you find their work inspiring and you want to learn more about it and potentially contribute. Um, I mean, Angela and I alone, like we, we met at Stanford, but she has continued to serve as a mentor for me, despite me, you know, we're not at the same institution anymore, but keeping that door of communication open um, and uh, continuing to grow your network as far as uh, collaborators and kind of having the confidence to do so, um, I think it will be well, well received 
again, what we, what we found is that women seem to support and collaborate with other women in a positive way. And so I would just invite people who feel like they don't have um, a direct mentor at their own institution to, to use some of these resources at ATS and other women's leadership conferences to get to help get some doors opened and then you know kind of walk through those doors take advantage of those um, relationships that start to form and and try to initiate some collaboration that way yeah that's that's absolutely great advice and i mean i think it's just phenomenal that you've used professional networks to actually help build collaborative research endeavors what a great success and so uh, i'm hoping that any listeners out there who have a lack of uh, local uh, mentorship here can at least uh, press on the ATS and try to branch out. There is even a women in critical care group that meets every year at ATS, which is another great um, contact source for our for the audiences of this podcast, I'm guessing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think the uh, women in critical care, it's now an interest group. That's correct. It moved from a working group within the critical care assembly to be an interest group that is ATS wide. And while it's still a group devoted toward women who uh, identify themselves as critical care practitioners, it could include people from across the organization. That's a great place to network and find some mentorship. That's great. I think this uh, concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. This has been very insightful uh, discussion, not only of gender disparities and authorship of critical care literature, but also how that reflects on disparities in our field of critical care in general. I want to thank you, Dr. Vranis Rogers and Stapleton. This has been absolutely great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I'm hoping our listeners can work at their own institutions uh, to break down barriers and level the field for women to succeed in critical care and academic medicine. Uh, This is Mike Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thank you.